Yeah, I love watching that intro video because it really kind of gives us a chance to see the intense integrity that goes into every stick that Vader makes. Welcome, everybody, and thank you so much for, for joining me again. This is so great to be a part of this Vader percussion sessions that we do every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we have shown so many great interviews with so many great artists. It has been extremely exciting to bring these people to fruition and introduce them and just, just have a, you know, a chance to hear their story. It really is fantastic. Next week on January 5th, I will not be here, but we're going to have Vader artist Mario Caleri, and he's going to talk with Adam Deitch of Lettuce. It's going to be unbelievable to talk to him. Adam Deitch, I believe is, what, is how we call it. And it's uh, the band Lettuce. And this is just a great, great interview. Mario, thanks so much for filling in for me in the process here. And uh, later on in January, we're going to have the great Cheryl Crow. And joining us, of course, with Fred Erlingham, it's going to be great, great to have them talk and just discuss about what that's like and how it is when he plays with her and for her and all the journeys that they have been through. And Cheryl, of course, is just an absolute legend. So we're excited to have her with us in January. We'll keep you all posted with times and information and days that we do this on here. As we're scheduling this here, this is great to bring people that, my gosh, I get a chance to meet so many great people whose names I've heard throughout the course of this incredible career. And then I get to meet them. And this gentleman today, I have heard his name for years. From the Bronx in New York, he's a phenomenal player. Would you please welcome Mr. Ralph Roll? Ralph, come on and join us. Hey, man. How you doing? I'm doing great, Ralph. Thanks so much for being a part of us and sharing some of your life with us. You know, we go back and uh, your name has popped up through the course of my life. Uh, you know, I'm in the New York area here through many, many years. And you have played with some of the best of the best of the best in the industry. And what you're doing, not only in a musical and drumming and a leadership way in the drumming community, but also as an entrepreneur. So I want to kind of balance all of that because when I saw, when I saw snow snacks and I saw the cookies that were on there, my mouth was watering. <laughs> we'll get into that too, but I want to start by, young kid, you're involved with music. How'd you kind of get involved with music and how does it all kind of start for you to, to bring this whole musical journey into your world? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And uh, thanks, my man. Uh, thanks to my man, Chad, for, for having me on. You know, Chad's my, uh, my drinking buddy for many years. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, 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 <laughs> no, I, I don't know. No, he don't, I don't drink. I'm kidding. So um, uh, I started uh, as a very young uh, guy watching my brother, my brother, Howie, uh, who's about maybe eight years older than me. He uh, somehow talked my mother into letting him have a drum set because my mother was a very strict lady. And we had to get permission to do everything. I mean, it, but it, it, the reason why is because we grew up in, in the projects and she was a single parent and she had to have that iron fist, if you will, in order to make sure that her kids didn't get into too much trouble. So um, she allowed him to play drums. And, and I one day came in our room, a little tiny room, two beds. That's all I could fit in is two beds in the, a, a night table, a lamp. I'll never forget it. Uh, it was a small black and white TV with none of these kids know anything about that dressing. <laughs> and in the middle of the two beds was a, was a drum set. And I was like, oh my God, there's drums here. So my brother was playing in his band. They would practice in the room. Smart move for my mother because she knew if they were practicing in the room, she knew where he was. <laughs> so um, 
I would ask him, could I play? Because I he was my my male model, role model. So I, anything he did, I did. Uh, and I asked him, uh, is it possible I could play the drums? He said, you can play, but you're left-handed, so don't switch the drums around. Just, <laughs> just sit down and play. And I was like, okay, fine. So I would climb up really high, and, and I would sit there, and I would grab the sticks, and I would leave with my left hand. And the ride cymbal was over here, so I had to reach over. And at the time... Um, my favorite drummer was Ringo Starr. Ringo Starr was like, I saw him on Ed Sullivan's show. I loved Ringo and still to this day love him because he looked like he was having so much fun. So yeah. I would sit there and go, she loves you, yeah, yeah. I would just play it. Like, is that the only song I knew? So I would just play, you know, that groove and any anything I would hear. And uh, that's how I that's how I got started. I just was following him. Uh, he uh, He ended up, being a mechanical engineer. Uh, I followed him for four years of that, but then I realized one day in school, I was like, I really looked around the class and I went, what am I doing here? I can't see myself doing this for the rest of my life. So I, I, I stopped and, and uh, continued very seriously with the drums. I was around 15, 16 at the time. You know, I didn't have a drum set, but that, you know, that's a whole nother story. He got rid of his drums and blah, blah, blah. But I started because of my brother. So a, a couple of things. First of all, and understand, Ringo is also a natural lefty. Yeah. And he plays a right-handed kid. And what's always interesting is and I also was very influenced when the Beatles were on the television show. And that's kind of what got me started also. When Ringo played, he started his fills with his left hand. Well, it was really kind of interesting. The unique sound that he had was because right. he was lefty. So right. Yourself too. So you're playing a righty kid. When you kick a ball, do you kick with your right foot or your left foot? I thought, you know, it's funny you say that because for a long time I used to love to play uh, with a Frisbee and I'm naturally left-handed, but I would always throw with my right hand. I don't know what that's about. I don't know hmm. where that came from, but uh, that's what I would do. Uh, and I think I do kick a ball with my right foot. I Interesting. What the point is, is that if, you, if you're throwing a frisbee with your right hand, that means there's elements of ambidexterity in your body that you just naturally were righty or left-handed in what you would do. The other part of it is the fact that you are, you're kicking with your right foot means that your bass drum pedal fell more naturally under, you, under how you felt. And because you were lefty, all it was a matter of now was moving the right symbol to the left side, and you're playing open-handed like Billy Cobham did. Right. Um, I changed the position of my ride symbol. Uh, it was always on the left-hand side, but I had it kind of positioned over Tom uh, Tom one uh, over the over the kick and between the hi hat. And one day I saw Rayford Griffin yeah. playing. Um, I was I got called to play with Cameo, and he was the drummer for Cameo, but he was doing a tour with the uh, with the. Uh, uh, I think it was Philip Bailey and, and George Duke and the tour got canceled. So he, he came back and he was supposed to be showing me his parts and he took his rod and he put it over here. And I was like, Hey, that works so much better. So I, I moved it over because of Rayford Griffin watching him. But uh, yeah, the, the ride symbol thing. Uh, I don't know. I just somehow the, the sonically and not so much physically, I, you know, I, I learned how to play that just from wanting to hear the right sounds because no one told me that you have to play the drums crosshand. So I just kind of well, went with it. 
when you think about it, the cross-handed concept really is, is a bit archaic. No other instrument teaches you to cross your hands other than dysfunctional drumming at that point, which is what it, what it really was at that point. That's what Cobham called it. He opened it up this way. Cobham, who's a natural writer, he just said, it makes more sense to play my hi-hat with my left hand with the freedom you have of your right hand. So that kind of, and Billy was doing this back in the late 50s. Right. Really kind of right, right. Um, my brother, again, who is, who's a, an engineer, very brilliant man, he kind of dissected my style. Hmm. And he said, your style gives you the ability to have the path of least resistance. Yeah, exactly right. And I went, never thought about it, but you're right. <laughs> yeah, it does. So for all you left-handed guys out there, <laughs> or left-handed players, I should say, <laughs> Go for it, for sure. So here it is now. You're, you're playing the kit, 18 years old. You know, you're, yes. you're, you're not, now you're playing. And is that, that was your first gig that you had? Was, I think the band was music? Yeah. Um, in my building on the first floor, I, I always give him major props, was a, a drummer named Wade Taylor. Uh, nickname out in the, in the projects, we used to call him Puggy. Uh, Puggy, uh, uh, heard me playing one day when I finally got my drum set because I used to play it every day. Uh, and he, very thick kind of James Brown kind of accent. And he called me out the window. Yo, wow, man, you sound like I go up them drums up there, man, you're doing your thing. So, I mean, I, in, 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 in English, that means you, you sound quite well. I, I, I applaud you. So uh, he asked me if I wanted to audition for a group music because the drummer uh, his name is Tyrone. Tyrone Govain had found another gig and they need a drummer. So he thought I'd be good for it. So I told him, I said, yeah, man, uh, I'd love to do it. But, you know, you got to ask my mother. And he came upstairs and he asked my mother and because she liked him. If she didn't like him, I wasn't going anywhere. Uh, she said, no, he could go to the audition. She didn't know exactly what it was for. And I went to the audition and I got the gig. And it was the first time ever playing professionally, the first time on a plane, the first time out of the country. It was a lot of firsts <laughs> that, that had happened at that time. But I got the gig, you know, and, and uh, I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> and had, you take, had you taken lessons before then? What was your, what was your preparation for this? Were you, did you feel prepared? Uh, no, no lessons. Um, luckily, um, I had a good ear. And my brother and my sister had an incredible but actually both of my sisters, they had great record collections. My brother listened to everything from rock and roll to jazz to 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 uh, the last poets. He was yeah. into all different styles of music and, and mostly Motown is what I had gravitated towards. So no, I didn't have any lessons at all. My mother couldn't afford lessons. So I learned from listening to records and luckily a uh, guy in my neighborhood, Jerry Horde, the Horde family was all, all in drum corps. And one Sunday he was out in front of my building. I guess he was waiting for someone and I heard drumsticks on the fence. And I looked out the window and it was Jerry. And I said, hey, what's going on? I said, where are you going? He says, we're going to drum corps practice. You want to go? I said, you got to ask my mother. <laughs> so it just so happens that my mother served on the housing board with his mom. So he was safe. So went downstairs, got on the train. Everybody met down on 125th Street. They took the four train uptown to the Kingsbridge Armory. And I remember walking in and there was a guy yelling at the horns. They were in a semicircle. 
And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to be here. And then we went over to the <laughs> we went over to the drum section, and there was a lot of drummers of different ages, and they could really play. And at that moment, I was bit. It was done. I was I was a drum. Still love drum corps. I learned my rudiments. I took those and applied it to the, the the set. You know, picked up on drummers that really really influenced me. Billy Cobham absolutely being one of the first yeah. that uh, influenced me. Robin Russell. Uh, the play with New Birth was a huge influence on me as well. And I just took that and, you know, started practicing songs and and uh, just started growing from there. Boy, it's interesting how, how someone like uh, Billy, who's a, a, a dear friend who I've known for well over 45 years, Billy, he, you know, it, it's, it, he's just a beautiful guy. He lives in Bern, Switzerland, and uh, and he's just a, just a great, but he's still dedicated. But it's interesting about how he was heavily deep into drum corps also. Yeah. And that really became a, a you know the, the roots of of what we did years ago. We did drum corps, and that built our chops up. Right. Who did you march with? I, I didn't march. Uh, Billy had marched with the Sunrises. Uh, in, in yeah. The and uh, and I had met Billy uh, just performing gigs together in the course of uh, mm. back in the early days. But uh, just to hear him play and to hear his technique of what he did in drum corps. I mean, other than marching in high school, you know, marching bands is what I did. That was a whole nother world, but just having that drum corps influence and the teachers right. that I had enforced all the rudimental drum corps stuff that we went through. We went through all the Wilcox and stuff and all these drum corps books that were just, that's what the, that's what you guys were doing naturally. We were yeah. learning out of, the, out of the book. So it was kind of interesting right, to see right. the process of how it was done. It was really, really right, very, right. very helpful. And even someone like Steve Gadd, another drum corps guy. Yes, uh, yes. Big drum corps guy, you know, he marched up, uh, up, uh, I believe he marched upstate, upstate New York. Um, yeah. One of my, you know, again, uh, the guys of our age, we had certain influences that just changed the way that we thought about application. Mm -hmm. uh, and Steve was definitely one of those guys. He came, it all came, we, we, we were the fortunate generation to grow up. Uh, with so many different music styles that if we were smart enough, we would try to uh, play all of it and all of it would come out in, in good ways uh, if you, you know, latched on to it, you know. And that's what Steve Gadd did for me. When I started to learn his, uh, his, his uh, history yeah. and I was blown away. I was like, dude, this guy is like, and he's so smooth. He's, he's just smooth. He's got that... <laughs> Drum and pimp stuff, man. And you know, he's like a drum and pimp, man. He's so cool, you know. And, you know, him and him and Bernard Purdy, they just got this smooth thing about them that I love. And 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 uh Cobham, I love what I loved about Cobham, my very first record that I ever purchased uh was a Robin Russell record, and my second record was a Billy Cobham record, which was totally clips. Uh the first was New Birth Birthday. And when I listened to uh, uh, Robin and I listened to um, uh, Billy and, and then I listened to Gad and then I listened to Danny Serafin. I started to get all of these like what I would call them as canvases of playing that I'm like, I like all of this. I mean, I like it all. It's just, you know, Peter Erskine and, 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 and Harvey Mason. I'm just like, I'm loving all of this stuff. And then, and then I discovered, um, Buddy Williams. Oh my oh, goodness. Man. How great, right? A <laughs> great player. <laughs> Buddy's that dude, man. He really is. Buddy is he's 
He's amazing. Buddy is an amazing player because like Gad and like Purdy, he has figured out how to play across the spectrum of so many different music styles and do it kind of seamlessly and makes it all sound good. That I started turning over records and we all did and we're reading it and I'm going, who is Buddy Williams? Because I'm seeing this guy on every, I'm got Buddy, turn it over the record, Buddy Williams, jazz record, Buddy Williams, R&B record, Buddy Williams. Like, who's Buddy Williams? I, yeah. I want to know him. And there was another guy, one other guy, Aaron Schwartzberg, I believe his name is. Schwartzberg was on a lot of records, too. So really? I was getting all of these influences from so many places. And again, <laughs> no teachers, so I was just listening to them. You know? It was a different time years ago, and I think it's an important thing to kind of bring up the fact that, first of all, on the radio, we had such a variety of music that was played on just just regular radio. You could turn it on, and you'd hear Motown, you'd hear pop, you'd hear Beatles, you'd hear Chicago, you'd hear Blood, Sweat, and Tears. I mean, it was just so, you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire. you hear Stevie Wonder. It was just so much influence coming from all different types of music. It was a very different world. And on the albums that we bought had all the information of who was playing what. I miss that in today's music. Yeah. Here, here's, here, one, one great thing here, just, just a quick little segue. My daughter who is now uh, 18 years old, um, she recently started uh, get, uh, getting into vinyl, but more about the art of the covers. And for Christmas, I bought her a turntable. What a great thing to watch her, like just open herself up. And believe it or not, uh, her favorite uh, artist right now is Johnny Nash. Oh, She's she just listens to Johnny Nash. She'll flip the record over, and then uh, we were just shopping for some other things, and we went through the record. She was getting something for her best friend Marissa, and I I convinced her to get the best of Johnny Mathis, <laughs> and to watch this eighteen year old and and I just I'm so happy because she's reading the album covers just like what you were saying. She's 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 seeing that we came up probably had a you know I might get flack for this but a little bit of music period than they might be coming up in. Well, we I mean I, I, that's a fair point. I mean we had information that was delivered to us immediately, and when we bought an album, we listened to the entire album. We listened to the entire go. representation of the art. It wasn't just one song. You'd hear all of it, so it took you on a journey. You're reading the lyrics. You're reading who who played on each album, and and it was a different drummer. You know, it might have been Gad, it might have been Jeff Picaro, whatever we were hearing. We kind of knew their sound because we saw their name relating to what we heard, and it was a very different kind of an education that we had. Right, that was really a very blessed time. Yes, it really was, and all the genres that came around when we were you know coming up helped us yeah. to you know you know, just be uh, uh, more seasoned, if you will, musicians, that we wasn't just kind of locked into, as I said before, one thing. It's kind of yeah. cool. So you're with music, you're traveling now, and all of a sudden you're on a plane, you're traveling. I mean, there's a lot has happened in a short amount of time, and you're just taking this in. How are you adapting to it, even just mentally? How are you kind of, you know, fitting in with all of it? How are you interpreting all of it? Well, at, at the time when I was in music, I was still in drum corps. Uh, and I was actually still a marching. I was still of age to march. Um, but I was excited about the experience of um, actually, you know, playing 
an instrument for for lots of people and then someone actually pays you it wasn't a lot of money but that wasn't what for me that had nothing to do with it at all it had nothing to do with how much money you made. i still lived at home with my mother so i was a lucky guy it was more about the experience and the, the uh just the, the knowledge of what came along with with being uh, a, a a musician i didn't even consider myself a professional musician back then in the beginning i was just I was just trying to get a gig and keep a gig and, and continue playing and get my name out there. As you know, this is long before social media and, and, and computers and phones and things of that sort. So somebody had to pass your name along. So you needed to have all the right attributes, you know, at the time. So I was I was excited. You know, my mother was not so excited because she came from an era of you need a job and you being a drummer is not a job. That's just something you you do. And I kept telling, I said, no, no, this is this is a career. This I don't want to be an engineer. I don't want to go to Pratt Institute. I don't want to do want to I want to play drums. And she wasn't very happy about it. But you know, over over time, I think she saw my passion for it. So she uh she kind of got on board. You know, my older sister, Yvette, um, she was very supportive and she was an artist, so she was very supportive of of the forward motion. She helped yeah. out a lot. My sister Yvonne, she was the nigga. We, you know, she if if you have a political name in the family, my sister was like almost like a, a, a I would say Desmond Tutu, because she <laughs> she was always negotiating with my mother to get you know get me in things or out of trouble. You know, <laughs> mom, he, he didn't mean it, mom. It's, I mean, he didn't. No, mom. And and she would you know. So my sister Yvonne was very cool with that. <laughs> yeah. So, but it was a, it was an experience. I learned a lot from it. It was a transition as to what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go, and how I wanted to get there, and what it took. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So these are skills that that first of all, you know, from from your your upbringing, those disciplines and those that integrity is already kind of embedded in you. But now you're starting to fine tune them because. After music now, you know, you, you start taking off and you start playing with a wide variety of other people and you're starting to make connections that is really building this incredible career. Yeah, well, what happened is going back to the drum corps years, I was fortunate to be under the instruction of two uh, amazing people. One of them uh, is a guy named uh, Bobby Craig, who has taught a lot of drummers who are very lucky to have uh, his tutelage. And another one was a guy named Ricky Mangum. Ricky Mangum, uh, great drummer, used to drum with the, uh, with the Brassman. He, and he, he went to Skyliners for a second. But mm -hmm. Ricky became my big brother. He used to, I used to go to his house. We used to just practice and play. And he's good, he, he was very good at that. And uh, you know, his mother was always uh, very kind to, to let me stay over. And we worked, worked out a lot, Bobby Craig, who I call Yoda, he just had this very poetic way in which he taught that most drummers that are instructors now kind of use his style because he's, he's when I say poetic, he's like the Alvin Ailey, the way he shows you the, the movement of your stick and the way he looks at the, your hand and, and how you hold the stick and how he just gives it a whole nother dimension. And I'm glad that I, I met him because he paid a lot of attention to serious, serious detail, not so much of the uh, the, the the ruggedness of, of, of playing, but the, the details in the sensitivity and the expression 
of of what to play. And that I took with me and you know, moving forward to get other other gigs that, you know, and again, I gotta go back to listening to all of these records. I was listening to what the masters were doing. I was paying attention to the types of um uh sensitivities that they were using, as I call it a canvas. They would their their stroke on that canvas for the music was always something that was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I want to play like that. Well, you know, it's it's, uh, it's very interesting. We have people that are listening and tuning into us from uh, Mexico, from Ireland, from all throughout the US, from uh, all different countries in Europe, and it's amazing. And you mentioned a name like Alvin Ailey. <laughs> and I want people to understand Alvin Ailey was a great dancing, uh, a great dancer himself, but a great instructor and started the Alvin Ailey Dance School, which has gone on to continue at this profound way of teaching dance, which was about movement and expression. Right. So right. what you're talking about now, and by just by making that comparison, just shows the amount of depth that you were researching in the same thing, in movement and expression. This is fantastic. Well, you know, again, I, my mother was strict, so I had a lot of time at home. <laughs> so uh, if, 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 you know, I would, she would let me go to the library. And this is, this is, the library was that place where the world just, the universe opened up, not like the computer, like you have now, which is a whole nother thing. But I would go down to Lincoln Center Library. And from being under Bobby Craig, when we would go out to the Falcon Cadets in Elizabeth, New Jersey, we would stay at his house and he would play these orchestral pieces and he would have the score. And he just said, follow along if you can. And, you know, we didn't know what we were following. We were just counting. But that opened some of us up to wanting to learn how to read music, wanting to learn how to orchestrate and, 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 and write, you know, pieces and things of that sort. Yeah. So all of that was part of the whole influential thing. My sister worked in the, in the uh, community center, my neighborhood, they had an African dance over there. So I was doing hand drumming with uh, uh, Aziz Ahmed and uh, his, his brother, uh, Fareed. And I started to just keep all of these things like, wow, the world is a beautiful place. The library is a beautiful place. You know, I was, I was, I was a kid from the projects, but I was a nerd. I was a straight up nerd. You know, I didn't let people know. I mean, you know, I had the whole, Yo, what's up? But I, I, was, I, was, I was more, I was more to the books, man. I got skipped from, I got skipped from seventh to ninth grade, but I didn't tell anybody I got skipped. I, I didn't want people to know. Fantastic. So with this here now being being the nerd that you still are, in the matter of fact, and the fact that in this uh, process, yeah. how did you how did it go from there? Where did Nile Rogers come in and Sheik and all and all these different other acts? I mean, you played with, with everybody, and then you did 14 seasons on its showtime at the Apollo. Yeah. I mean that that in itself was uh everybody coming in that you had to play with. This was you on, on the cutting edge of playing. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the Apollo part um, happened um, kind of from Buddy Williams. Hmm. Um, I had always, you know, when I finally, the way how I got to meet Buddy Williams was a very funny thing. There was a, I was walking through my neighborhood and there was a guy walking, towards me, he had on a Zildjian t-shirt. And I went, that's odd. 
So I stopped him. I said, "Excuse me, you do, do you uh, you play drums?" He says, "No, but I'm I'm the drum tech for Buddy Williams." I said, "What?" <laughs> he said, "Yeah, I'm the drum tech for." I said, "You you are the drum tech for who? Buddy Williams?" I'm like, <laughs> "Get out of here!" So from that meeting, his name is Butch Butch Watson. He's a great guy. Uh, he introduced me to Buddy, and and. That was amazing because Buddy was the drummer at the Apollo at the time. Mm-hmm. Buddy was always busy, and and up until the pandemic, Buddy's always been busy. I can't think of any time in Buddy's life where he's not doing twenty seven gigs at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we became friends. Uh, he called. I got a call to 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 sub at the Apollo. He said, "Buddy can't make it. Can you come in?" And I subbed, and the the musical director Ray Chu. Um, who, who him and I, we had become really over the years, very, very uh, close. Uh, he heard me play. Joe Gray, who was the singer and the stage stage manager, he, um, who's calling me? <laughs> he, he, Joe, I'm doing an interview, brother. I can't talk to you. <laughs> so... Is this somebody putting an order in for cookies? No, nah, this is this is my one of my long. I reached each other. We was eleven years old, actually, and he just called me up. So, hold on, let me get back to you. Hold on a second. I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry about that. So sorry about this. This is. I can't hear this you. This is now. how it works. I can't hear you now. You okay, that was a commercial. So, um, I'm sorry. Well, where did we leave off? We left off at. So, uh, so Buddy Williams. So, you, so you, you go to the Apollo. You, you, you I go to Apollo. I sub for Buddy. Uh, Ray says to me, uh, "I like what you're doing because you sing, and we only have a four piece group, and that we need that extra person yeah, yeah. with that extra voice. Is it possible that you can, you know, come in when Buddy's not around?" And I said, "Of course. This is the Apollo Theater, of course." <laughs> so Buddy was Buddy was out for a succession of of shows. So. Ray said, he said, listen, Ralph, I'm gonna talk to Buddy, you know, because I, I need to really get this unit the way that I'm that I'm hearing that it should be. And I think that you'd be a good fit. And I don't think Buddy's gonna have a problem with that. So he called Buddy and he told Buddy, he said, listen, you know, the 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 people and it was true that the production team uh from the Apollo at the time was going, listen, this this is what direction we should be going in. And, you know, to me, it's it's like I need to ask. I want to talk to my. If you, if I sub for you, I need to tell you what's going on. I need to find out and make sure that you're cool, you know. And talking about Nile Rogers, Nile Rogers called me to, to do Lady Gaga for the Grammys, and it was a tribute to David Bowie. And the first words out of my mouth to him is, "Did you, did you talk to Sterling Campbell?" And he said, "So you, do you don't want to do the gig?" I said, "No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying." You know he's been Bowie's drummer forever. Did I mean? I'm I, I just I'm just courteous like that. I just was like, Good. did Good. you call uh, Sterling? So, <laughs> you know, Buddy was cool. Me and Buddy are cool to this day. He's throwing me a bunch of gigs. If I got something, I'll call him. Which I know he's going to say I'm busy, but I'll, I'll call him anyway. Uh, but that's that's how the whole thing happened with um, with uh, the Apollo, and it, it ended up being first we were just doing Wednesday amateur nights, and then. The, the new producers from um, Showtime, at the, Showtime at the Apollo, mm-hmm. well, the producers at the time, the Suttons, 
wanted to change the band and they asked Ray, they came down to see us, they liked what they heard and that's how we ended up doing the TV show for so long. Yeah, and, uh, and then I met uh, Niall and Niall uh, was actually co-musical director for Katie Kirk's Colon Cancer Foundation. Right. And he finally got a, a real chance to hear me play. The first time he heard me play, I felt like the jilted you know, boyfriend because uh, it was for a charity event and they were honoring him. And I'm like, I got to play my behind off because now Rogers is going to be here and we're <laughs> playing chic songs. And, and, and actually the singer at the time, Silver Logan Sharp was singing a tribute to him. And I'm like, yo, I got to play this chic stuff because I want him to hear me. And it was like this. Hmm. And that was it. And I'm like, hear the thing I played. <laughs> and, and then I got I got a call from Nathaniel Townsley, who was uh, the drum at the time, that needed a sub because he was playing with Joe Zawinul, and asked me if I wanted to do uh, the gig uh, he couldn't do. And I said, yes. Same situation. I, I try my best to prepare, 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 prepare. So I wrote out all of my music. I got I listened to all the songs. I listened to the live version they sent me with Omar Hakim playing. I listened to all the records. I listened to all the transitions. I wrote it out. We went over to Switzerland. Um, we had a, a, a like a 15-minute rehearsal in New York. Now came in. We played part of the medley. In the middle of the medley, he packed up his guitar, and he left. And I said, what did I do wrong? <laughs> so I said, I said, excuse me now. I said, is, is everything okay? He said, yeah, you sound great. I'll see you in Switzerland. And that was that. <laughs> Get to Switzerland, do the gig, and... Uh, Silver comes over to me and says, now nah, really like the way you played the show. Would you like to do the gig? And the first words out of my mouth is, isn't Nathaniel Townsley the drummer? And she said, no, we were looking for someone. He was subbing at the time. You know, I just wanted to make sure, because I'm really not trying to cut somebody out of a gig. That's not, that's not healthy and that's not how I live. And that's yeah. how I ended up being with, uh, with Nile for so long. And it's been a great, 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 great relationship. Is he's such a good person? Sorry to say, but just two days ago he lost his mom. Oh, wow. um, but he's a he's a he's a great guy. He's funny. He's caring. He's very talented. He 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 understands the sh the band concept as far as the band shares the band. He's yeah. always trying to include us in different you know events and things that he can. And I really appreciate that feeling of security. You know, now I, that feeling of being on edge, I don't like that feeling. And no musician likes yeah. that feeling. Yeah. So that's yeah. the story about the Apollo and, and Nile Rogers. My, my uh, dog is coming up on the couch. Well, I think an important point uh, in, in this discussion, uh, you, Ralph, is to understand the integrity in our industry is an extremely yeah. important part of how we brand ourselves. Mm -hmm. And you really have a great brand in how you are. Again, you don't want to take any gigs away from anybody. You are extremely open and honest. You're very, you know, um, disciplined in how you run things. You're very professional. Those are great qualities to see in someone that isn't always what we see in our music industry. Yeah. Um, I don't do politics. I don't like politics. Politics is something that I try to stay away from. I do music. when I, And I learned... I was A&R manager for uh, Jive Records. And when I got into the job, 
it was truly a, 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 an A and R job. It was yeah. an artist repertoire job. I was I was cultivating artists, like uh, getting them choreography, flying them across the country, doing remixes for the artists. I mean, it was like the, the old school traditional kind of A and R where you were hands on. Yeah, yeah. And I and I really I really loved it, but. Um, one thing about working for record companies, they sometimes do not want you to be brutally honest. Hmm. So I was brutally honest about an artist that that who happened to turn out to be huge. Um, but I told him, I, you know, th th we were at a round table. It was all of the A&R directors and managers from all over the country. And sitting across from me was Neil Portnow. Um, he was uh, A&R. Uh, head of AR for the for the company. And then it was David Renzer, Barry Weiss, um, and and Carly, uh, Clive Calder, uh, Sean, uh, can't remember his last name. Um, and then everybody was there. And they went around the table the, the <laughs> long way talking about um, this uh, particular artist. And um, they they were asking, so what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Because the CEO of the company really liked them. Really, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And it got to me and I said, I don't know. And I swear, it's almost everybody clutched the pearl. <gasps> like, he did he say, I don't know? And so <laughs> Clive, said, <laughs> Clive said to me, well, why is that? I said, well, because right now you have so many Black male artists that are out that are really doing well from... Gerald Levert to Johnny Gill to Keith Sweat to Aaron Hall to all, all these, it's, it's Bobby Brown. Everybody's really doing well right now. How do we break this guy in who really doesn't have a distinct style? He's kind of like a Bobby Brownish, Aaron Hallish. You know, he's not him. So he sat there and he looked at me and he said, well, what do you think? I said, well, what I think is that he needs a really good programmer to learn his way around the studio. And if we, we, if we pick a good studio for him and get a really good engineer to kind of help him expose his sounds and maybe even work with Teddy Raleigh because he's on the label, that might be good. He sat there with total silence and he said, you know what? I'll get Chris Trevitt. We'll do the project in Battery Studios, which he owned, and I will get, you'll get a good programmer for him. And I said, yeah. What I didn't know at that moment is I, I just hung myself. <laughs> I didn't realize that. I, I didn't realize that I just politically hung myself because that comment should have come from my boss. I right. should have ran it by her, right. which she would have ran it by her boss. And then they would have said, either they say it or not say it at all. I right. had no clue. So, I, I, you know. so not too long after that, um, I was working with High Five and, and, and we're doing well. I got fired. They let me go. And they said that I was going against the grain of the company. And I didn't know, I really didn't know what that meant, but I was very hurt because I don't, you know, no one likes to get fired, yeah. but I realized something about politics. Yeah. They suck. <laughs> and I need to get my behind back out there, you know, on the playing scene and, yeah. and play with musicians who have more of a family, you know, kind of gypsy vibe than this because yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah. that was not, you know, that energy was just not right to me. So that's why well, I don't like great, politics. What, what a great lesson to learn, which, which is, which is, you know, what our 
you know, life is about. But so many things are very interesting. I mean, you let's go back to the playing end of it because you are able yes. to play so funky and in the pocket without <laughs> overplaying and make it feel good. And then on top of that, you can sing on top of that. So how do you have a question number one is how do you create that feel where it just remains in the pocket and funky without having to play anything extra that is needed? That's question number one. Question number two is how the hell are you able to sing so great while you're doing that? <laughs> okay. So first of all, thank you. And <laughs> there is a, uh, a blend of different drummers that made that all uh, possible. Uh, to 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 do, and it, there's some names that you don't know. Like for example, one of those people, as far as the funky drumming, is a guy in my neighborhood named Ricky Williams. Ricky Williams was he was I talk about him in my master classes because I was a very young kid. Ricky lived up on the tenth floor in 1440. Was he blind? Yes. And I would go to his house and he was the only person, I was the only person that he would let come in to watch him play. And I would stand behind Ricky. Ricky was, is about 6'5", lives down in Florida now. And I would stand behind him and kind of peek over him while he was playing and just kind of watch his hands and listen to his sound. And I would put my hands on his shoulders because I wanted to feel what he was feeling and try to hear what he was hearing. And I would close my eyes and, and try to get all of that whatever he was getting, because Ricky was, Ricky is a funky drummer. Then um, the that just learning that helped me to get gigs. And he always used to say, it was the second band I ever was in, was his band. And he would always say, keep it in the pocket, keep it in. And I had no clue what that meant. I'm like, I don't know what keeping it in the pocket means. <laughs> so Tommy Green was a drummer next door. And I said, Tommy, what is keep it in the pocket? He said, he said, you got to keep it in the groove like this. You got to keep it on. The you got to get that two and four. That's the pocket. Once you get that pocket going, your pocket is going to be good. You're going to get that there. If you get a pocket, you're going to work for the rest of your life. I'm just trust me, man. You got that pocket. That's two and four. And I went, oh, yeah, the pocket is just a two and four groove. And then I, um, outside of the drummers we know, and then I went to a place called The Cellar. And I heard this guy that twisted my mind completely around named Bernard Davis. Bernard Davis, and I watched him play, and I watched him do 27 things at one time. <laughs> like he had a wind chime over here, and he's singing background parts, and he's, I mean, killing it. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, this guy is crazy. And right around the same time is when I, I got hip to this other young cat who was tearing up everything all over named Dennis Chambers. <laughs> so I'm I'm playing with with uh, Evelyn Champagne King and we're opening for P Funk All Stars, which was like a, a gift. Yeah, and yeah. the first night, I go out to the house and it before George Clinton hits the stage, it almost takes thirty minutes. And they're playing, and this guy is killing it. But I keep hearing these timbali fills. <laughs> I'm hearing these timbali fills. And I'm going, is the percussionist off stage? I don't see. So I go back around the back of the stage and Dennis has a timbali set up on his left side. He's grooving and he's ripping the crap out of these timbali. Oh my goodness. This I'm like, okay, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. This is where I need to be. Dennis and I 
who was one of the nicest people you'll ever want to meet, became friends. He sent me a bunch of cassette tapes of P-Funk Live. He also sent me some cassettes of his band in, in the Baltimore, D.C. area. And I I think I played those tapes till they popped. <laughs> but, but, but what I learned from all three of those uh, canvases was how to keep that nice groove, get the blend between your kick, snare, and hi-hat. You don't have to you know, go crazy when, when it comes to until it's time, but keep that pocket. So, cause you're the one, you're the cop on the block. You're the one that's got to control things. You got to keep it right. And that's how I learned all of that. Well, it's kind of interesting because, you know, in, in having the influences that you've had and, and names of people who I had never heard of before, you know, you know I mean, which is so great to, to, to be able to at least Open, open our minds that, that there were artists that are out there that are unknown that have had great influence on so many great players. That is just so powerful that that they they are truly unsung heroes. They are. I mean, I talk about I talk about Ricky Williams all the time, and the reason why I talk about him in my master classes the way I do is because first and foremost, Ricky never saw himself as being blind. Ricky was a freaking maniac. You know, he played all the games outside with everyone. <laughs> Ricky, like I said, he lived on the 10th floor. This is this is the truth. I would leave. We would talk and, you know, play and laugh and everything. I love making him laugh because he's got this huge laugh. So Ricky would walk me to the elevator and say, all right, man, I'll talk to you later. And I'd get on the elevator. And by the time I got to the first floor, <laughs> Ricky was opening the elevator door because he, <laughs> he would run down the stairs, not two at a time, sometimes three. I've seen him do it. I'm surprised he never broke an ankle doing it. And Ricky, and he would open the door and go, ha, ah, ah, ah. So we're still really close friends to this day. I love Ricky Williams a lot. He's a great, great guy, great organist. That's his main instrument. Plays everything. Runs Logic at his house by himself. Wow. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. Pretty powerful, you know. You, you talk about about playing the pocket and playing the groove. You use the Vader model, the West Side Stick. What 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 is is that? Is that what feels best in your hand? Okay, so for a very long time, um, I was trying to find a stick that worked, like every drummer. You're trying yeah. to find that what stick works, what stick works. And I've never been someone to just kind of follow the pack. You know, everybody at the time was playing Promox and, and things like that. Sort. And then, and then I, I came across uh, these sticks many years ago. Called it was Vader. I was like, wow, Vader. And they they were they, they felt great. And then I found a, a a model that was working for me for a very long time called uh, Manhattan's. Uh, Manhattan's. Um, I'm always looking for I'm looking for a stick that gives you not only a great sound on the drums but a great sound on on the on the uh, on your cymbal uh, in all you know whatever you're playing. So so you you're not worrying about getting the right feel or or approach because your stick isn't giving you what you want. And Manhattan's for a long time. I think the almost the entire time up until the last few seasons on Showtime at the Apollo. Um, I use Manhattans and, and the musical director, Ray, he came to me and said, um, let me see a stick. Ray's a drummer. Before he became a keyboard player, he was a drummer. He played my stick. He said, I want you to try to switch to something that's a little, uh, a little meteor. I'm looking for something a little meteor. Now, 
He's the musical director. I can't turn to him and go, so, yo, man, well, this is my sound. No, <laughs> it has, music as a performance has nothing to do with me. Yeah. It's all about what the music is asking for. You ask the music, what are you looking for? And you give it to it. You ask the musical director, what do you want me to play for the music? You ask the producer in the studio, what sound are you looking for? So you 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 bring a, a, a wide range of different styles of sticks to be able to uh, make that possible. So yeah. I talked to Jimmy Mola, who was the king of sticks. Jimmy <laughs> Mola's longtime friend. I've, I've done voiceovers with him in, in different companies. Jimmy Mola is not only a great drummer, but he's a maniac of a person. A I love him. Guy. And he <laughs> said, yo, man, you might want to check out these sticks uh, that it has called West Sides. And he said they're, they're kind of like a um, they're kind of like a Buddy Rich uh, stick is longer and it has that shape of a, like the bead and the stick actually kind of blends in together. He said, give it a try. And as the, I, I mean, the second I got it, I'm like, yo, these 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 things are like these things are crack. These things are great. These they feel good. They're a little bit longer, so. To get around the kit the way that I like to get around the kit, you don't have to push the stick. The stick kind of flows with you. So yeah. so I'm a big, big fan of, of a West Side stick. You know, a lot of drummers that I let, like they hear me, they'll hear me and go, what are you playing? And I'll show them the West Side. They go, wow, these are a little long. I'm like, yeah, but you don't, you don't have to work hard with these. They give you what they want on the cymbals. They give you the blend all across. They give you a great hi-hat sound. My thing is if I'm playing a groove, the sound between the hi-hat, the snare, and the kick has to have this cross-section of sound. A lot of times when I'm teaching, what I have found is drummers are so consumed with snare and kick that they forget that that hi-hat is essential to groove. And I, I talked to him about get that blend in sound and in feeling on the hi-hat, and it will change your life and your work forever. Yeah. So that's the, the West Sides. Are the, they, they, they kill for me. I love the West Sides. <laughs> You know what I'm impressed with is I uh, when I teach I've been teaching for many many years I've got my own personal five P's that I use ah. and, I've teaching, and I've been using them for years and years and years and then again through Jimmy Jimmy Mola who is listen he's, he's a great drummer he's a great musician he's a great guy he really is I want you to talk about your five P's okay passion power placement performance and purity um, I latched onto those a long, long time ago uh, to try to give me um, like uh, uh, a direction as to how I was thinking and how, how passion, power, placement, performance, and purity applied to those things. And um, as you know, passion is why we became musicians. It's not, you don't come up, you don't become a musician because you think you're going to get rich. <laughs> you become a musician because you want to play music. And if you happen to make some money doing it, then that's, that's cool. But, but being a musician is, is a very passionate place to be. It, it's, it's the reason why you listen to other musicians play. It's the reason why we go to concerts to hear some of our favorite people because of the passion of what they're doing and we want to learn more and we get up early in the morning and we'll practice before we have things to do and we'll practice before we go to bed. That's all passion. Passion is very important to any musician's 
forward motion, power. Uh, the way how I interpret power is not being physically strong. Uh, power is about having the ability to give the music what it's asking for without going too far or not far, en far enough. Like when the things things start to get excited as the drummer, you always have to make 100% sure that you are controlling everything around you. And that takes power because you can get lost in it and it will go way far away, but you got to be able to, nope, I'm the cop on the block here. I got to be powerful enough to, you know, play. Placement is all about making sure that everything that you're doing has the proper placement because you're if people are following you, then you have to be able to give them something to 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 stand on because you're the foundation. You got to have a relationship with the bass player like Jerry and I. I laugh about it all the time because Jerry and I have this bromance when we go on stage the way we're looking at each other. It look it looks like afterward him and I are just going to be like this. How's it feel? You feel okay? You know that that's 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 how me and Jerry are all the time. We we have a and I tell drummers if you don't have a great relationship with your bass player, there's going to be problems. And if he's not looking at you, get his attention so you yeah. guys can get together. So the placement is right, okay? Passion, power, placement, performance. Because through all of that, you're trying to give your audience, the people that are supporting you, supporting your bottom line, the best performance they've ever seen in their lives. I don't care if there's two people or 200,000 people, you give it the same exact level of performance. And then you try to play it as pure and from the heart is what makes it all beautiful. You know, how many times have you got behind your set and you're playing and you almost want to break out and cry because it yeah. feels so good? Totally. totally. You know, I, 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 there's not a singer or a musician or, uh, that I have met that hasn't had that feeling. Sometimes when we're on stage with Nile, Jerry and I will just be, I, I, it's like, I actually say to him, dude, I love you, man. You know, and it's, it's just that brotherhood of where we're going and watching the people and that whole cycle of empathy that we talk about where it starts on stage and it goes out into the audience and then it comes back on stage and you get to the point where you don't know the difference between the audience and the stage because it's all one big, beautiful, you know, love fest going on. And that's passion, power, placement, performance, and purity at its best. So that's what I teach in my master classes when I go out. I'm trying, I'm not going out there doing fancy stuff. That's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to get people to connect more with their instrument from uh, a very personal standpoint. And that's why I always talk about the canvas because painting is very, very personal. And you're always trying to get the blend and if you have a paintbrush and I have a paintbrush and we're both standing up there, we want to paint something great together. So when we stand back and look at it, we go, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, all right. Eh. Okay, we're good. That's, uh, that's, that's important to me. It's never, playing has never been about me ever. It's always about the music. Always. Boy, that's beautiful, Ralph. You know, it's interesting. You talk about about uh, about just this in, in incredible, you know, these five Ps. We have some people that have joined us from Italy and is listening. And another P for me is pleasure because when I see soul snacks and I see <laughs> of these freaking cookies and stuff, 
that gives me great pleasure. Just before we close out, just talk a little bit about Soul Snacks and how the hell this all came about. Okay, so coming up, uh, I was kind of a quiet kid. As I told you, I was a nerd. And my mother always stressed education. So I, I, I didn't have, in my neighborhood, coming up in the projects, most guys had cool. They had the, you know, now they call it swag. But back then, you, you just had to be cool. There was, you know, you see a girl, they'd be like, hey, what's up? How you doing? What's your name? Where you from? Man, I swear, I wish I was your shoes because you could just walk on me, baby. I didn't have that. You know, I was kind of like, hey, you know, so I learned how to bake from watching my grandmother and my mother. And my cool was if I knew saw a girl that I liked or whatever I started talking to, I would actually bake something and I would give it to her. She'd go, oh, that's so sweet. Oh, my God. Thank you. And I was like, ah, I got you. <laughs> so that's how the whole cookie thing came about. It's just it's just seeing the reaction. You like music seeing the reaction that people get when they when they sample it. And my girlfriend um, moved in um, and uh, my production company, this was after my mother passed away, we were working in my, my house. And one day I went in the kitchen while we was producing, I whipped up some cookies real quick and I brought them in the back room and they both looked at me, Abando Cologne and Gerard Harmon, who are my brothers for life. They looked at me like, yo, what's up with these cookies, dude? Like, What's good? Like, why are you making cookies? And I'm like, because I like to make cookies. It's like, you all right? I'm like, what do you mean am I all right? Yeah, I'm all right. So they tried the cookies. They was like, hey, yo, these are good. Okay, so you need to make these again. And then my girlfriend and I decided to give out cookies for the holidays. It was 36 friends. We couldn't afford to give them out, give out gifts. So we made cookies for everybody. And many people said, you need to sell them. And that's how I started the uh, Soul Snacks cookie company. And now we, uh, one of our biggest clients is JP Morgan Chase. And we bake for one wow. of the biggest caterers in, uh, in New York City, which is great performances. And um, we, we've come, we've come a long way, a lot of ups and downs, but uh, I have a big factory now where we bake cookies. And I'm in the midst of uh, beginning the talks on a, on a new deal in the beginning of the year. And I'll get back to that. But I think from what I'm hearing, it's going to be extremely promising. So anyone out there who has any dreams, do not walk away from them. Always follow your passions, follow your dreams, because they will come true. I mean, we sell a lot of cookies. And then if you want to order, just go to eatsoulsnacks.com. Have a restaurant, too. So we have we have the website now up on the screen and oh, there it is. It's so nice. this is so great what a great story you. you really are are inspirational on so many different levels you know in the, the fact that you have allowed perseverance and persistence to be a part of your life that you just don't give up you don't use right. the word can't you are extremely positive and motivational the fact that you see something you stay focused on it you go for it and you go back to the roots of your family which is great upbringing, great discipline, great values, great core values that is guiding you still to this day in the success of not only all that you've done in the music industry, but what you're doing now in the snack industry. This is incredible. Thank you very much, Dom. I really appreciate that. And I tell everyone, do not talk yourself out of doing something great. Do not talk yourself out of it. You don't, you don't want to look back and say, what if? It, you know, success is not how much money you make. It's in finishing the thought. Finish the thought. Be the greatest that you can. Finish the thought. That's extremely important. 
Great words to finish by. Ralph, I thank you so much. On behalf of Veda Percussion, you have been a joy to talk to. You are the, the last interview we have now before the year 2021. So this is a great way to go out on such an uplifting and positive note. We thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, Chad. I'll see you at the drinking hole, man. <laughs> thank you, Ralph. Great, great to meet you. Thank you, Don. Nice meeting you. Fantastic, fantastic. These this is these interviews are just so great for me. I get a chance to meet these incredible artists. Ralph is such a genuine person, and he just brings great joy. So check out his website. Check out eatsoulsnacks.com. Check out all this here. Support him. Be involved with it, and whet your appetite with some of those great snacks. It's absolutely delicious. Next week on January fifth at two p.m., we're going to have again. Adam Deitch, you know, is going to be interviewed. He's from the band Lettuce by Mario Calare, who is a phenomenal, phenomenal Vader artist himself. So you'll have a chance to kind of hear them do their thing. And I'm going to make sure I tune into it also. And uh, in January, we're going to have Cheryl Crow. This is going to be so huge. My gosh, with, with you know, and Fred, the drummer, this is so great to have her join us and talk about what it takes to, to be that level of an artist, to have the vision that she has and build the career that she has, Fred's back there grooving along the way for her. This will be a great, great conversation. We'll let you know what date it will be, and we'll have some great, great fun doing it. I want to wish you all the happiest and healthiest New Year. I hope your holidays were great for you. Stay well, stay safe, wear your mask, wash your hands, distance yourself, but not socially distance, physically distance yourself, but socially connect to everybody as you can in every way. I thank you so much, Chad Brandolini. Thank you so much. Alan Vader, you guys are great, man. You guys are just making great, great product and inspiring us all. As you can see, I've got a whole, you know, pack of sticks back here. I'm going to go do some playing right now. So thank you so much, guys. I'll see you real soon in 2021. Bye-bye.